throw the best minds of my generation, destroyed by madness, starving, hysterical, naked, dragging themselves to the Negro streets at dawn, looking for an angry fix, angel-headed hipsters, burning for the ancient heavenly connection to the starry dynamo in the machinery of night. Hello, I'm David Herskovitz, and welcome to Beginnings a new podcast brought to you by Howl Arts. Howl Arts is dedicated to preserving the past and celebrating the contemporary culture of the East Village and Lower East Side. We met at Howl, the downtown arts organization, to talk about our friend Jean-Michel Basquiat and about the New York zeitgeist of the 80s. Boom for Real, Sarah Driver's doc about the life and times of the teenage Basquiat had opened and Howell had organized a show of work by Basquiat friends and contemporaries that covered the walls and cast a spell on us as we went back in time to those golden days of yesteryear. Sarah Driver was here, as were Alexis Adler, Felice Rosser, and Lee Quinonez, all friends and early supporters of the scene superstar, who are also principal players in the film. Though no one could see the future with such clarity at the time, no one could predict that our East Village friend would become one of the most famous artists of the century, but we all felt we were dealing with a unique talent who stood out from the crowd in so many ways. He'd inserted himself into the art world conversation with his cryptic Samo aphorisms and became a presence on the downtown scene whether cutting it up on the Mud Club dance floor or wandering on St. Mark's Place in a lab coat, he stood out wherever he went. It was evident that he knew something we didn't know and we wanted to get some of that. Driver's film, Boom for Real, focuses on Basquiat's early years when the Brooklyn-bred Haitian-American led an itinerant lifestyle that often landed him on someone's couch for the night, if not longer. Embedded in his story is also the story of another time and place, when New York City was at its physical low point, but also exploding with creativity. The CB bands had made it, graffiti and hip-hop were the big new thing, and apartments rented for peanuts. The two greatest luxuries were freedom and time, Though blocks upon blocks of streets had been burned to the ground, downtown New York was still the magical place, the place where you'd want to be if you were a creative rebel and felt out of place in the rest of America. They may have started as undergrads at Columbia University, as did Alexis and Felis and their schoolmates, filmmaker Jim Jarmusch and writer Luke Sant, but they eventually made their way to the, where the action was, where giants like Allen Ginsberg and William Burroughs roamed the desolate streets and still lived decadent bohemian lifestyles. Such was the case with Alexis Adler, then rooming with Felice, who first met Basquiat one night on St. Mark's Place. They had both been drawn downtown where they still live, Felice is the leader of the band Faith and a chronicler of the scene in articles 
She has written for several publications. Alexis is an embryologist and photographer. Her archive of Basquiat drawings, collages, and clothing are featured in the Boom for Real and are currently touring museums. I came here to college. I met Felice the first day of college. We live next door to each other at Barnard College. And um, we, we, went, uh, we were in mid-80s uptown, but we, we started coming downtown to... Mid-70s. Mid -se yeah, mid-70s. And we came to CBGB's. It was my first experience, I think, downtown. And it was like, whoa, where am I? And we, uh, as soon as uh, I, I, we graduated college, we moved downtown. Felice moved downtown. I moved downtown. Luke Sant lived down, uh, down the block from me. Jim, of course, moved down as well. And uh, my first meeting of Sean uh, was at a party. Like it wasn't like there were some clubs but mostly there were roving parties that we would meet where was the party uh it was in little italy or somewhere downtown and we'd see posters on the wall on the billboards you know just we'd paste it on on a lamppost and that's where we would be that's where we would head for that evening or night and so we went to this party and uh there felice introduced me to jean so she clearly had met her, had met him first, and I, I had seen his graffiti, and it was so excited to meet Jean, and because that was just how we expressed ourselves and how we learned about what was going so on. So you knew about Samo already, yes. And, and Felice, did how did you meet him then? Uh, I I met Jean um, in front of Club Fifty Seven. I used to live on A Street and First Avenue. And I would see him around at the clubs, you know, the mud club. And, uh, you know, uh, there are not uh, so many African-American kids down here in the scene at that time. So we did more or less sort of check each other out and, you know, give you, you know, just say hey or something. So I'd seen him a lot at the mud club dancing late at night and stuff. So I, I was walking down St. Mark's Place and in front of Club 57 in a lab coat was Jean-Michel, you know, and uh, I just looked at him, I said, hey, how you doing? He said, hey, you know, and then we started to talk and all, and, uh, you know, I was going to uh, Max's Kansas City that night to see the Heartbreakers, and I asked him if he wanted to come, and he said, okay, so we just walked over there, and then, uh, you know, he came back to my place, and, you know, people stayed at people's places, you know, so he just, I had a futon, so he just... And you came from where? How did you? I came from Detroit, Michigan. In what year? Like 1974, mm -hmm. to go to school. Like Alexis uh, came because New York. You know, I've always been into music, and at that time we were reading Rock Scene and Cream Magazine, and Lisa Robinson kept writing about Max's Kansas City and the New York Dolls, and for me the, that the was glam like, rock. Oh, well, just. <laughs> Oh, you know, the clothes and the vibe. And I just, like, I couldn't wait to get here. <laughs> oh, yeah. So. And then when you got here, Definitely. did you, like, look around and go, what the hell did I get myself into? Uh, y yeah, a, a little bit. You know, you could check the different vibes. Like, 
in Detroit, right? You know, everyone, most people have a house and car and all. And you drink Kool-Aid or lemonade your grandmother makes, you know, and that's your drink, your summer drink. It's before people drank water all the time. So, um, <laughs> so that was our drink. And I came to New York for college, and like the second day, the, our, my uh, counselor for my orientation, this girl Nisi, we went into a bodega, and she bought a quart of Tropicana orange juice, and she went outside, and she opened it and stood on the street drinking it like this. And I was just like, oh, my God, I'd never seen anything like that before. <laughs> this woman just sitting there like that, and like nothing, no big deal. New York is crazy, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that was one difference I noticed, yeah. But then you moved downtown, right, into yeah. the Lower East Side? And we all wanted to, because Patti Smith had come and done a reading at our college. A lot of people were hip to Patti Smith's writing, and she came up there to read, and people went to see her. And then she said, oh, you should come down, downtown and see our band. And so we were like, okay. So then everyone started... Well, that's my story. You know, Luke and Jim, and they might all have a. But they all went story. up. They were in Columbia at the same time. Right? Yes. And you knew them up there. Yes. Yes. Was it like kind of a scene, or what was that like? Oh uh, well, we were all friends. You know, we were all listening to a lot of interesting music. Luke was really cool. He was like a blues scholar. He never came out of his room. He just listened to blues records all the time. <laughs> you know, and we all gave him respect and. <laughs> You know, it was just an interesting time. I, I, we didn't know about film history, per se, and my friend Buddy, who's in the movie, also said, oh, you should come see Psycho, and I was like, I've seen Psycho before in Detroit, and he's like, but have you looked at it as a work of art? And I was like, no. So, you know, so that was like mind-opening in that way. Lee, as he's known by his graffiti tag, was one of the most wanted writers by the Metropolitan Transit Authority Police. His top-to-bottom trains are legendary, and along with the other pioneers of the genre, like Fab Five Freddy, Futura, Dandy, and Ram LZ, his groundbreaking work has been an inspiration to thousands of artists around the world who have since established street art as a global movement. By reclaiming public space for the people, Lee and John shared an unspoken awareness of the outsider's struggle for recognition in an art establishment that scorned their culture and way of life. But the downtown scene was different, welcoming, open to innovation, intrigued and inspired by what they saw on the subway cars and tenement walls. The times were ripe for cross-pollination. Musicians picked up cameras, painters formed bands, the clubs turned into performance spaces where art projects bloomed and everyone danced the night away. When Charlie Ahern teamed up with Fab Five Freddy to make Wild Style, they chose Lee to be star of the iconic movie that told the story of art and hip-hop. The rest, as they say, is history. I met him in 1979. It's around the same time. Right? Around the same time. There was a lot of things popping off at that time, but in 79, um, I'm sure Michael Holman had introduced mm -hmm. the whole Canal Zone concept well, thing. You could tell like, this audience as well what yeah. that was mm -hmm. like. Um, there was a, uh, a rather eccentric artist from the UK by the name of Stan Peskett uh, who, who 
who had this huge loft on the bottom of Canal Street right by the West Side Highway when the West Side Highway was actually still there. And uh, uh, I don't even know how we got to meet Stan, but we ended up in this loft, which is huge. Who's what, we? Uh, Fred, 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 Freddie, and I. And what were um, you doing then? What was... we, we, were, we were preparing our first paintings for our first show in, in uh, Rome, Italy. Hmm. In that same year, the de- December of that year, that show opened in Rome, Italy. And the, where, where, what was your lifestyle like at that time? <laughs> um, well, you know, I grew up in the Lower East Side, Chinatown, right by the water, and uh, it was rather rambunctious and colorful. I mean, it was 1979. I was 19 years old. I was the most wanted graffiti artist in New York by the MTA. Uh, <laughs> and uh, for obvious reasons, and uh, you know, it was kind of like oh, you we, were living at home. I was living at home with my parents um, in the projects right by the water, with the greatest views out, you know, out into the water. And uh, uh, you know, it, this was all strange to me because and, and were you going to school or you? What was that? By that time, I was failing school. I was uh, I wasn't attending. I was watching. I was. Train, train watching pretty much uh, every day. Um, you know, after, after doing your work at night, the next day you would spend the rest of that morning or the whole day looking for that train to come into service. So you would, you know, you would either catch the train you painted or you would just catch thousands of other works that were coming out, debuting every day by the hour. And, and you knew Freddie from... Well, Fred came and handpicked me out of... My failure at trying to get my GED uh, education. Um, after I left uh, school, I tried my GED program, and I failed at that. But he came. Fred came into my classroom in a long trench coat, <laughs> large dark glasses, um, you know, uh, fedora hat. And he comes in, he, sp- he whispers to the teacher, which I'm just looking, I'm, I'm the kid in the back of the room, just like really bored with, you know, just this whole existence, um, thinking about trains or whatever. And, and I'm looking at this guy, I'm like, who is this dude? And he walks up and he talks to the teacher, whispers in his ear. Teacher looks over at me, he says, this gentleman wants to talk to you. I'm like, the cops. <laughs> So, and you know, Fred looked like a cop, you know, he just looked like, and um, at that time, I was like, oh, jeez, they got me, how did they, you know, so um, I walk out of the classroom when everyone left, I'm the last one coming out looking on all corners, and he comes out of the shadow, yo, <laughs> you know, Fred, you know, it's just like, yo, I've been wanting to meet you, and I'm and I'm thinking, this guy's like, he's a cop. He's just trying to, like, lay, lay the trap. And, you know, at that time, I was very reclusive and, you know, introvert for obvious reasons. I was just like, no, I don't trust anyone. I was afraid for my life and all. And, and uh, you know, he said, i just been wanting to meet you. I love your work. I think we should talk. I think we should hang and really make things happen. By that time, I had the handball court murals up already popping up all over the place. And, and you know, I just took a liking to him. I just okay, entrusted well, him. Uh, so so. Uh, just to back to Jean now. So what happened? So you went with Fred into the party? We went to this party. I was reluctant to go there. Um, 
Stan was very gracious to like, you know, hey, just take whatever space in the 5,000 square foot loft you want, just take it. And Jean popped in there by chance, I think through either Fred or Michael's invitation, and he was dating this girl there. Not dating, he was kind of like fooling around with this girl. And I can't remember her name. She was also sort of like homesteading there at the same time in one of the corners. And that's what we were just all we were painting in that corner. You were painting canvas. canvas. Fred and I were making canvases. Jean didn't have a pot to piss in, and he just was like, "What are you guys doing? We're making paintings for this for this show we're doing in L- in, in 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 Rome." And he started to make uh, drawings on these postcards. So he was kind of in and out, like, you know. Did you know about the same at this point? I, di- I didn't know much about it, no. I, I wasn't watching the walls. I was watching the trains. Sarah Driver made the movie Boom For Real because she wanted to tell her Basquiat story, the story of the making of the artist as a young man. Her friend Alexis Adler had a treasure trove of early Basquiat artwork that had never been exhibited in public. The Basquiat who painted in Armani suits and tragically died too young is not the puckish charmer they remember. Adler's collection is now touring and for the first time people are seeing a side of Basquiat that was only known to his friends. Well, I was born in New York City and I grew up in New Jersey and and I always felt like you know, my dad commuted to the city, so I always felt the shadow of the city, and I always knew I would live in New York City. And I remember being on Ninth Avenue, waiting to go in through the Lincoln Tunnel when I was with my parents, and looking up at a tenement apartment, some really like sle- sleazy tenement apartment, thinking, one day I'm going to live in one of those apartments, <laughs> and nobody's going to mess with me. <laughs> Success. <laughs> when yeah. I was like eight or nine, you know. <laughs> um, but I remember meeting, I must have met Sean and like, because I, I went to film school, NYU graduate film school, I was going for my master's degree, and that was on 7th Street between 2nd and 3rd Avenue, so it was right in the heart of the East Village. Mm. And I must have met Sean in like 78, probably on the street. And, so peop- um, a lot of street meetings here, it looks like. This is it, that was what how it you was met like, everybody. right? This was on the street. And, and what was the circumstances around that? And you were going to school as well? Or what was your yeah, situation? Yeah, I was, I was living in Little Italy. I was living on Prince Street between Mott and Elizabeth. And it was really uh, very, very dangerous. And I used to edit at night, like walk from there to, to NYU, to 7th Street. And so I cut my hair really short so I looked like a boy. And I took on the kind of stance of a boy so that I could really move through the streets <laughs> very easily without being harassed and um and i i remember one very specific thing about with jean was uh but you know i would see the samos and you'd, you'd see him around he was like and he was so there was and i think renee um ricard said it so well when he called him a radiant child it was like he had this glow you know and he was sort of this kid that everybody saw around and um i remember when we were shooting permanent vacation and we were shooting in John Lurie's apartment, and John was a very, very dear friend of, of Jean-Michel's. And, he, and John, John was living on 3rd Street between 2nd and 3rd. And we were shooting permanent vacation. It was the summer of 79. And, um, and Jean-Michel was sleeping in a sleeping bag on John's floor. And it was kind of like the Dormouse in Alice in Wonderland, <laughs> where 
<laughs> he kept kind of like, Jim would keep, you know, kind of going, Sean, we have to move you over here, like, <laughs> get him out of the way of the camera. And Sean would sort of sleepily look at him and then fall back to sleep. You mean on the set he was sleeping? Well, where you the were set shooting? was John Lurie's apartment. Yeah, okay, so you yeah. were shooting there. Yeah. And that's funny. So and, and, you know, I, I remember later, this is a few years later, um, you know, the Softy Brothers, they make these really great films, and Sebastian mm -hmm. um, McLeod, Bear McLeod, you know, Liza Bear and Michael McLeod's son. I remember being at Sean's house when he finally had a house. This was after 81 or whatever. And on Crosby Street... And, um, and people were throwing their coats on, on Jean's bed. And I heard this baby. And it was, and it was like, I looked at it, and it was Sebastian. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, there's a baby on this bed. <laughs> so with, in your, you know, what was New York like to you? Were you, you were scared? You, you thought I it was dangerous? Scared. I wasn't scared. I just knew that protective. I had to deal with the street in a very intelligent way. And... You also had an, you had to have this very fine tuned antenna about, I'm sure everybody here who lives here knows about this antenna of like who was around you, who was next to you. You were very, maybe that's why we met each other on the street because we were so aware of who was around us on the street. And it's like, you know, I, I keep saying, like, I see people now, they're totally oblivious to what's around them on the street with the iPhones and everything. And, um, but we had to, out of, out of survival need, is be very present. And, um, and the street also had a weird vibe to it. Like, I remember if you were in a bad mood and you went out on the street, all the bums picked on you. Everybody picked on you. <laughs> and then when you were in a good mood, everybody was, like, responsive to you. It was, like, very... Do you remember that? It was, like, so... There was, like, a real palpable emotional... Mm -hmm. exchange going on all the time. This, uh, these years are, 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 for me, seem very transitional because as we talk about all the experiences that mentioned here, there, you know, that was the year when uh, Sid Vicious and Nancy Spungen was, what, 79, right? At the same time, that was a big sensational story in New York, right? It was like the Sex Pistols. Uh, had, you know, not quite broken up. Yeah, they had broken up after that one tour. Lex, do you have something? Yeah, and I was just going to say, uh, to speak of that, we all kind of dressed, the, uh, not the same, but we had sort of a, 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 a uniform, not a uniform, but a way of dressing that you could be out on, like on the subway or on a platform or wherever on the street, and you'd recognize somebody even if you didn't know them from, like, you know, our milieu, we, you know, had, would dress, you know, shop at secondhand clothing, you know, and we just looked a certain way, and that's how, and we could recognize we were from the same sort of tribe. True. The, I mean, there was this huge divide between, you know, uptown, downtown, crossing 14, you know, you, you would sort of enter a different world, whereas down here, uh, things were very different. But, you know, to the extent that this whole punk, you know, because as the Mud Club opened and everyone, you know, is talking about that, uh, there was sort of a change in, in a lot of in the culture as well. Sort of the punk scene had sort of in the, in the rear view mirror at this point, right? Entering into like a new phase of New York where the whole um, sort of gentrification, you know, things started to change. The music changed from the punk rock and... and 
became more mixed. It would be R&B and with James Chance, and you would even have like No Wave. And to, to what extent did, did John fit into that world? Would he be, because at the same time that Sid and Nancy thing, the, the Soho News started writing about seeing these tags around town, and, and suddenly, you know, and the story in The Voice came out, and suddenly his, you know, world started getting a lot more attention. And I don't know, it just seems like there was a time when things sort of moved forward. Well, it, I think there was a whole melding of worlds, you know, uptown, you know, graffiti and hip-hop joined with, hip, with punk reggae. And, and reggae and African, you know, uh, Fela Kuti came in, into our scene and or existence because punk was very we white just, wasn't it i mean wasn't right, that just, like a no disco which was sort of like a well, anti disco was part of it too it was part of downtown no it was it became but it wasn't felice uh, I, you know of course it was very compartmentalized and you had people who were you know a no disco, but they were just one section because Got to Give It Up by Marvin Gaye came out that summer, or like 78, 79. And I remember being next door to CBGB's in that hallway of the, the you know, Bowery home or what, you know, the hotel. And there were some, I, I was like standing there with people and I was like, this is the greatest record ever made. And they were like, oh, what? You know, that's disco. And I was like, you guys are nuts, you know. So, you know, they, uh, so some people had that vibration, but some people didn't. People were changing. I mean, look, television started out like that, and then Tom Verlaine's first solo album, you have a reggae song on it. So things were influencing. Also, don't leave out the English people, because the, right, right? Because the English people came, and they were all right into reggae and real hard. And there were a lot of West Indian people in Brooklyn, of course. And so we were, like, mixing that up, going to 12 tribe dances and reggae. So it was white, if you look at it that way. But for me and for a lot of us, we were just hanging out and doing our thing, you know. I I mean, the reggae gets a pass because that was sort of part of the punk scene from London, right? Um, bad Brains. Ba- bad Brains is an exception, yes. Yeah. And also, Yeah, you'd hear the, you, you just salsa everywhere. Yeah. It's so weird you don't hear it anymore. But not at CBGB's. Yeah, but right next door. No, no, I hear you, but I'm just talking about the specific scene that was taking place there that was very exclusive in that way. I don't think I disagree okay. because I, I've grown up from Detroit and everything, playing going to rock and roll places, and there's always black folks there, even though a lot of times people don't realize that the guy in Manster on CBGB's Live at CBGs, that was a brother, you know. There were, yeah, there was my a lot of my friends from the Black Rock Coalition started out at CBGBs. I started a reggae band with a girl from a black woman who had played in a punk band at CBGBs, and Pure Hell, who were from Philadelphia, were a rock band. Neon Leon, Jean from the Plasmatics, you know what I'm saying? So, 
it might on the surface look one way, but we were like, we were all up in it, you know, for real. All right, cool. All right. So um, another, you know, this idea of community, I feel like with Jean uh, was, you know, I sometimes wonder what it would have been like if he didn't have the support of you and Alexis and all the other people who ran into him at that time who were able to support him and see the, the genius there instead of reacting to, you know, why, who's this wild man that's like coming here, why, why, you But know. I think we were all looking for our tribe. We were all looking for our family. I mean, I've, I've had people ask me about the film and say, why don't you talk about his parents? I said, well, we didn't have parents. <laughs> we were looking for our new family. This was our family. But, so uh, with regard to the community, though, you know, the fact that, you know, to what extent is, is that community necessary for, for art to thrive or for certain people who are outside the norms of what is being created? Because we were all weirdos. Right. <laughs> we I all mean, fit. <laughs> I mean, specifically as we get into that, you know, the Mud Club No Wave world where, you know, people were just making kind of music that hadn't been heard before or just doing things that... Well, I think we weren't afraid to fail. I think that was the trip. We, didn't, we could afford to fail, and we learned a lot from those failures and those things that we tried. And I think because we felt we were in a kind of safe environment where we could just perform for each other, that that, that, that gave us a, a, you know, and everybody was respectful of just everybody making an attempt to do something to entertain each other. I think it's interesting that in... We were uh, allowed to experiment. Well, New York freely. was free. I mean, being free in the sense that you can get away with doing almost anything downtown. And um, I was listening to a podcast recently which reminded me about this whole like policy of the city at that time because of the bankruptcy and this policy of planned shrinkage that was instituted uh, whereby all of the services that were necessary to the city were being cut. Police, fire, hospitals, Schools. We benefited. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. It's kind of really interesting that, you know, well, because of that, the police didn't show up if something was happening. If somebody started a fire in the street, the, pol the fire department didn't show up. Buildings were burning down. And the two prime locations where this planned shrinkage was instituted were the South Bronx and the Lower East Side. So the two areas that actually produced, like, the greatest cultural explosion of, you know, this generation, certainly. Well, I know with film, like, you, you didn't need insurance. You didn't need to get permissions. I remember sneaking through a hole in a fence so that we could shoot permanent vacation on Roosevelt Island, you know, and it was wonderful. We didn't have all these restrictions, all this stuff that bankers and lawyers make money from. We don't have, we didn't have that. Yeah. And uh, even, uh, I think I saw Charlie Ahern from Wild Style coming in here earlier, but I, I heard him talking recently about that final scene at the um, park in the East River Park where they did it without police permission, like do an entire show party without the police involved. So those were good days in that respect.
The producers would like to thank Johnny Dinell for the intro music and all of his good vibes. <laughs>